So we've been going through this, the armor of God, the Christian in complete armor, um, where Paul says in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And as you understand who you are in Christ, put on the full armor of God. And that's the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and feet made ready by the gospel of peace. And you take up the shield of faith and you put on the helmet of salvation, the helmet of the hope of our salvation. And now we come to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, so today I want to talk about how, how do we approach the Scripture? Give you three postulates and go to a brief passage in 1 Timothy. How, how do we approach the Scripture? Because the Bible says in a well-known passage that many Bible school, by the way, I'm glad it's vacation, Bible school. They're taught the Bible. Biblical stories, biblical truth. But it's, uh, most people who have been to vacation Bible school have been exposed to this verse and or memorized it. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable. See, profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's profitable, and as it is profitable in your life, you are made competent or you're thoroughly equipped for what life brings your way. That's compared to a group of people he describes in chapter 3 where he says that there are, there's a group of people, verse 7, that are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. They're always fact-gathering. They're always immersed in Wikipedia, but they never come to a standing, a standard a foundation. And the foundation is the word of Christ and his apostles. And that's why he says in chapter 4 to this young preacher, right before Paul dies, he says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. You preach the word. I charge you. You preach it. You lay it out. You live it. Because a time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but they'll accumulate teachers around them who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. But you just preach the word in season, out of season. See, it gives us a place to stand. So how do we approach the Scripture? And next week, how do we wield the Scripture? How do we approach the Scripture? There's three statements in your bulletin. And statement number one is in part this. It says, we, we confess that both... Our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively, but we affirm that enlightened by the Spirit of God, we can know God's revealed truth truly. The Bible is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it teaches, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and trusted as God's pledge in all that it promises. Believe, obey, trusted. We can know God's truth truly as we are enlightened by the Holy Spirit. And so the, the first principle I come away from this statement with is this, is that we must be people who walk in known obedience. We must depart from known sin. We've got to be people who walk in obedience. In 2 Timothy uh, there's a passage that, that, that says this, 
or excuse me, Ephesians, it says, Ephesians 4, verse 30 says, Grieve not the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and elevates Christ and convicts us and teaches us. So he says, don't grieve the Spirit of God. And the paragraph before that, he says that, he says, you've been taught by the living God to put off the old self which belongs to your former na- manner of life and which is corrupt through his deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. So, so he says you've, you've got to depart from known sin. You've got to be made new in your, the thinking and the way you live your life. You've got to put off the old and put on the new, and you've got to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if, if I am to receive the Word of God, I've got to depart from known sin. And one of my great concerns, what's going on here, is, is that the standard of gospel obedience among the people of God today is diminished because the culture around us has departed from its moorings. We've got to stand up and say, we're going to, we're going to live right. We're going to live biblically. We're going to live biblically. We're going to be people who, who, who live right because we want to taste the power and the goodness and the unction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we're not going to just drift. We're going to, we're going to stand. We have, a fountain, we have a place to stand. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says that in, in the in a large house, they're not only vessels of, of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earthenware. So you have your gold and silver vessel, and you've got your wooden vessels. It says that some are for noble use, some are for ignoble use. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a gold or silver vessel useful in the master's hand, basically. Uh, whenever I read that, I think about me as a little boy. It was my job to mow the yard. And I would mow the yard and come in from mowing the yard to playing basketball or hanging out and I was thirsty. And, and on the first shelf that I could reach really from the age of seven were used old jelly jars, Bama jelly jars, and peanut butter jars. And that's what I drank out of. Now, by the time I was 12, on the third shelf, there were the crystal goblets. I didn't touch those. You drink the peanut butter jars, the Bama jars. You, if, I, if I ever came home and we saw the goblets out for supper, something big was coming down. That was for a special occasion. That's what this passage says. That if you want to be used of God, if you want to taste the goodness of Christ, if you want to have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you depart from known sin. And what you do, what you say, you, and you run to the glory of Christ. So, so we approach the, the Word of God by being enlightened by the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the second point is this, that the biblical revelation is not just to be known, but to be lived. The purpose of the Bible is to produce wisdom in us. A life wholly submitted to God's reality. Truth, then, it goes on and says, is a correspondence between our entire lives and God's heart, words, and actions through the mediation of the Word of God in the Holy Spirit. 
There, there is this known and lived reality of the Bible in our lives. It's not just a group of postulates to be memorized and thought about and discussed, but it is to be known. It's a living word that is planted in our lives, and there's this correspondence reality, and the way we live our lives is determined by what we believe. That's called your worldview. It's very interesting, the book of Ephesians that we've been looking at, especially Ephesians 6, can be easily broken down if you're going to think about the book. Chapters 1 through 3 is doctrinal. Chapters 4 through 6 is the application filled with doctrinal truth. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about our standing in Christ, who we are in Christ. And and Paul closes chapter 3 by this incredible prayer in verse 14 to 19 where he says that the church at Ephesus would know the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of Christ and that they would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And they would know that. And then he says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or we think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. He just breaks into this incredible psalm of praise. And then in the next breath, he says this, therefore, 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 I entreat you as the prisoner of the Lord to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Based on everything I've said, you live this way. He says, you live with all humility and gentleness. You live with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, you know, there's a correspondence in life between what we believe and how we live it out. As, As I approach the Word of God, I approach it with a heart that says, God, I want to be obedient. I want to be a new man because you've touched me by the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit because I've seen the glory of the cross. I was thinking this week about how we approach one another and how we live because God has spoken. And because God has spoken, all people have dignity. And all people deserve respect in spite of their zip code or their socioeconomic standing, or their ethnicity. All people, because they're made in the image of God. All people, boys and girls, men and women, deserve respect and Christian love. People have dignity. And because of that, because we're made in the image of God, we've been gifted Generally speaking, and if you're a believer, you've been given specific gifts, and so we have a calling from God to use what we have to build our culture, to give it to the next generation, and to honor God by the pursuit of excellence. You see, we should pursue excellence. We should pursue relationship because we get it. We have a foundation. I was talking to a man before the first service. I was in the restroom washing his hands. He says, you know, I, I was coming to wash my hands. I was coming to church, and there was a big turtle in the middle of the road, and I pulled over and picked the turtle up and helped it get it across the road so no one would kill it. I said, good for you. You're protecting creation. That's a good steward. You, you see that all of life is a gift, and so you live with responsibility for the generation now and the generations to come. And because God has spoken, we have a moral impulse to care for people. All people are made in the image of God. And then our Savior 
commends his disciples for clothing him when he had no clothes and feeding him when he had no food and visiting him when he was in prison. Matthew 25, and his disciples said, Lord, when, when did we give you clothing? When did we feed you? When were you ever in prison? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. See, people have worth. And that's why Mother Teresa, the Albanian nun who spent her life in Calcutta caring for leprosy victims or people that have been left in the streets to be eaten by rats, said that when I bathe the stump of a leper, I am touching the body of Christ. I think that's exegetically good. So, so this, there's a corresponding reality to what we approach the word with brokenness and say, God, change, change me and, and work in me. But this, this shows you our main problem, this, this painting. This is a painting by a man named Jacques-Louis David. It's entitled Citizen Emperor. It's a very famous painting. It's Napoleon crowning Josephine. And real quickly, the story behind this in part is that this is kind of a propaganda piece because they had no, you know, YouTube in those days, you know, and Napoleon is crowning Josephine, and in the painting, she's about 30 years younger than she really is, and Napoleon's sisters are standing there in, in obeisance, holding the gown of Josephine. In reality, they were fighting about who's going to have to carry her gown because they didn't like her, um, but, but really, the, the man was commissioned to show the crowning of Napoleon as the emperor, but what, this is what happened, which made it kind of a seedy episode. The, the crown was brought in on a satin pillow, and Napoleon jumped up, and he grabbed it, and he crowned himself. <laughs> you don't do that. You, the, 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 the head of the church, because they believe in the divine right of kings. By the way, we're Americans. We don't believe in the divine right of kings. That's why he fought the Revolutionary War. We don't, there's no, like our troops said in the field, this is really cool. This is, this is kind of sidelight. They would march into battle. The, the colonial troops were saying, we have no king but Jesus. <laughs> so take that, you Brits. Anyway, so, <laughs> so Napoleon, Napoleon crowns himself, okay? He crowns himself. And the guy said, I can't paint that. That's just arrogance personified. When I read that story, I said, that's my problem. To quote Augustine, we are incredibly, incurably turned upon ourselves as compared to the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. God. And, and so if we're going to be good students of the Bible, we do that. The third statement is this, that as Christian growth occurs only when the whole life is shaped by Christian practices in community, which includes prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, fellowship, and the public ministry of the Word. That if, if I am to grow in my grasp of knowledge of the truth and have this book by the power of the Holy Spirit shape my life, I must do it in the context of community. I desperately need the church. I desperately need men and women gifted to speak Christ to me, to teach me, to lead me, to push me. As Christian growth occurs only when the whole life is shaped by Christian practices in community. So I need the power of the Spirit. I need the totality of my life to be immersed in this, and I need community. So with that as a background, we're going to go very quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
verses 18 through 19. Listen. So Paul is writing to Timothy. He's encouraging him. He says this, verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Just stop there. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I charge you, I entrust this to you in accordance to the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare. So point number one is it's by the prophecies Timothy is to wage the good warfare. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the, before we had the complete New Testament, God gave the gift of prophecy. Now, the vast majority of, of theologians through the centuries have believed that once we had the New Testament, the gift of prophecy, which was proclaiming a message directly from God, that gift ceased. One commentary says about this gift that, it was, that they were promising comments. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe another commentary that says that a prophecy in those days was God's supernatural declaration communicated by the prophets, close quote. So, so the, the, the prophecy here that he's to wage the good warfare by are words spoken directly to him by men or women who were prophets. In our understanding, the prophecy we stand by is the Bible, is the promises of Scripture. So if I'm to fight the good warfare, I must do so based upon the fact that I am in the Bible, I love the Bible, and I stand on the promises of God. Now, it's the good warfare. It's good. Listen, it's good. In chapter 1, he says, I charge you, Timothy, to live this way, not to wander away, not to devote yourselves to myths and genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God. He said, conversely, the, 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 the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, but some have wandered away from these because of speculations and mindless dialogue. He said, but you just, you just stay here. But I want that. I want a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Then he says in chapter 1, verse 10, he says that this word is a sound doctrine. It is life-giving doctrine. See, the Bible's sound. It gives you hope and promise. I think it was 2 Timothy. Yesterday I was working. I don't know why I work out. It's the law of diminishing returns, but I was working out. And uh, I was sweating. And I'm able to take a little, I'm able to view verses as I work out. And it's kind of bleary because I'm about to pass out. But I was looking at 2 Timothy. I was going through 2 Timothy. I came to 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Or 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. It says this. It says, uh, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for the purposes of godliness. Now, here's the physical exercise verse. For while bodily training is of some value, and it is, godliness is of value in every way, every way, as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. Isn't that great? I love that. You know, godliness, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
orienting my life around the purposes of Christ for me holds promise for the present life and the life to come. You want no joy? You want no purpose? You want no peace? Then get serious about Jesus. Get serious about the Word. So it, it, is, it is the good warfare. But stop. It is warfare. It's warfare. You don't leave it off. It is the good warfare, but it is warfare. We have an adversary that wants to drink us down. I've been reading about Napoleon lately. I didn't realize this. There's something called the, the Trackenberg Plan when Napoleon was at his apogee, his greatest strength, which is long before Waterloo. He was unbeatable. And the Trackenberg Plan was developed by this guy from Prussia, and it was communicated to the Brits and the Belgians and the Dutch. And here, Here's a plan. When you see Napoleon show up on the field of battle, just melt into the woods. Don't fight him. He's, he's a, the master strategist. When you see him leave and go to another army, combine your armies and attack. That's a Trackenberg plan. You don't fight Napoleon. We can't do that with the devil. We can't say, well, I'm going to fight him Monday to Thursday, but you know, Friday to Sunday, I'm just going to leave. It's every day. When I was a child... I followed football. I guess I still do. And there was, a, there was a team in our area that won the state championship about every other year. They were really good. They were really good. I mean, they, they were really, really good. They had the same system from the third and fourth grade all the way through high school. And they had these guys that signed scholarships. And it's a small 3A school, but they just used to kill people. And so one year they were playing a team from Sparta, a little up in the mountains, a small new high school with a very limited number of athletes came down the mountain and played this team. And in the first half, seven or eight of their guys were, call, were hauled off of the field. And uh, in those days we said he got his bell rung. Today we say he has a massive concussion. You know, so we would just say we got our bell rung, you know, get it, walk it out. That's why a lot of us are not very smart. We played football 40 years ago. But this is what happened. At halftime, the band's playing, people are eating hot dogs, and they see these two buses from Allegheny High School pull out of the parking lot and go up the mountain. That was the football team. The coach was saying, we're done. We're not playing the second half. We're done. And I thought about that. That's the way a lot of people do spiritual warfare. It's halftime. We're done. You don't leave off the watch. It is warfare. It's the good warfare. The second thing, he says you, you wage it as you hold on to faith and a good conscience. You take the prophecies, you live in such a way that you hold on to faith and a good conscience. Uh, faith would be your relationship with Christ, but, but a, a good conscience is the inner awareness of the moral quality of your personal actions. You sit and you ponder that the way I respond to people, the way I treat people, the way I speak peace, the way I speak grace, the way I love people, the way I walk, is, it has, has an incredible impact on the way I live and on the way others around me live. So I, I labor. One of the great verses in the New Testament regarding this is Acts 24 where Paul says, I take great pains to have a clear conscience toward God and toward man. I do. He says, I, I, I labor to have this clear conscience. And, and so you realize, he says, but he says, says, but, but he says, this has happened. He says, some have rejected these. They, they've just rejected it. 
and they made shipwreck of their faith. Did you hear that? Shipwreck of their faith, among whom are two men named Hymenius and Alexander. So I step back and look at the text, and I go, there are professing Christians, maybe Christians, who make shipwreck their faith because they've rejected faith and a good conscience, because their conscience becomes dull and their relationship becomes state, and they make shipwreck. Let me tell you something. You can make shipwreck your faith. People say to me, how can I pray for you? And one thing I always say is, pray that I will finish well. Pray that I will finish well. Because you may shipwreck your faith. You reject, to a degree, the importance of a relationship with Jesus, and you have your conscience hardened, and you shipwreck. You shipwreck. This Thursday, we have a banquet for our seniors in high school. And they are a wonderful group of young people. And the thing, the thing that they're going to hear from their moms and dads and from us uh, time after time is be very careful. You see, this is a wonderful time for parents of high school seniors. It's a time where you rejoice and you weep. You weep because your children are leaving the home. And you rejoice because your children are leaving the home. You know? Sometimes it's 18, it's time to go. You know what I mean? You know, there's, when you hit 18, you become so much smarter than your parents. Just, just an axiom in life. You are so smart. Okay, good. So anyway, so you, you, you weep because they're leaving you rejoice because they're leaving. But whenever you talk, when I talk to these people, I say, listen, hear me. Hear, hear, hear the words. The older I get, the more I see the exponential, the exponential reality of bad decision-making ruining your life. When you're younger, it's kind of confined. But the older you get, the more you see the parameters of bad decision-making. And I say to high school seniors or to college seniors or to people in transition, new parents, newlyweds, listen, the way you live the next one, two, three years will have an impact on the way you live in 20 years. Hear, Hear me. Just, just hear me, the way you live. But I could say the same thing to a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old. And so the, the way we, we come to the Word is we, we, we wage the good warfare by the Word, that we, we have faith and a good conscience, and we realize that we've got to be careful because we can shipwreck our faith and how we need each other. The, the World Cup is in Brazil this summer. Never been to Brazil. Um, but I was reading a, a report released by the Brazilian police force. True story. Brazilian police force. A lot of these, you know, Brazil's a beautiful country, but there are some, some of these World Cup venues are in pretty tough cities. And so the Brazilian police report said this. If you're a visitor and you are mugged, give them your money. Do not scream because if you scream, you might be murdered. Well, I, when I read that, I said, I'm buying my ticket today. I'm going to Brazil for the World Cup. I want to go to a country where I'm going to be mugged and maybe murdered because I go to a soccer game. Good grief. You know, I read that and I went, really? Really? Then I thought, that's the way we are. The devil attacks instead of crying out, help. I need the body of Christ. Help, Holy Spirit. Help in the name of Jesus. We're quiet. And so we forfeit 
our lives. We, we just for, we forfeit our money, we pinch to forfeit our lives, we force our livelihood. Listen, understand the incredible importance of taking the Word of God as your standard, where you stand. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's close. Stand in prayer and we'll close at this time, okay? Uh, Lord, we thank you for the, really the privilege of opening the Bible. I I say that all the time because we open Scripture and it is, uh, I thank you for what Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And I need that, Lord. I I need it to to, to judge the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. So come, Holy Spirit, and take the word and do that. Do that in the life of this church, Lord, as we go through uh, the everydayness of walking with you and as we walk together as a community God, really keep us strong in faith. I pray that we would hear the stirring words of the Apostle Paul from this book we've been studying called Ephesians, where he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, I plead with you, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, we want to be that kind of people in our relationships, in our homes. So so do that in us. And we pray that uh, you would bless this country. As we think of Memorial Day, we thank you for men and women who've served. We think of men and women who've given their life for the the well-being of this country. Uh, And we we pray, Lord, you'd bless this nation. Lord, we, we, as the people of God, acknowledge that we are not the church we should be. We're not the nation we should be. Revive us, I pray. Bless our leaders. Bless those who govern, that they may govern well. And Lord, give us what we don't deserve. Give us men and women who walk in selfless sincerity before you, I pray. So, blessed be your name this day, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.